You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today, I'm talking with Danielle Lemire, a professor at University of Quebec and one of the authors of SIMD JSON, which is arguably the fastest JSON parser in the world. We talk about parsing JSON so fast that IO actually becomes the bottleneck, which as it turns out is not as often the case as we might like to believe, as well as talking about speedily parsing DNS zones, date time strings, URLs, and also non-parsing topics like Node.js string representations, benchmarking, and textbook approaches to performance versus real-world experimentation. And now, making parsing IO bound. All right, Danielle, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. So uh, I read the SIMD JSON paper that you and others published, and uh, it, like a lot of people I know, blew my mind. I, I had never thought about parsing this way. I didn't realize you could parse JSON this fast or, or anything textual this fast. Um, and reading about it, I remember thinking, this doesn't feel like a parser, like in the way that I know it. It, it feels very different. You're doing all these things with indices and bit shifts and the types of things that I usually associate with sort of one-off performance optimization tricks for math rather than a sort of architectural approach to parsing that also, by coincidence, happens to work way faster than anything we've done before. I'm wondering, how did you or, or whoever uh, you know in your group, how did this idea come about of developing a SIMD-based parser? From my point of view, going back... Um a long time ago, there was there was a, a somewhat of a debate um, online about what kind of formats people should be using, you know, to exchange data, and um, and and it started out with you know now we use JSON, but at the time uh, when this started, people started were using XML, which is still around, but of course, a yeah, less, yeah, a bit less used, <laughs> and. Um, and and people would complain about performance, and and so all sort of binary formats were, um, you know, created. And um, I remember reading about um, uh, Tim Bray, who uh, had a lot to do with both XML and, and JSON. He he wrote uh, several specifications, and his answer was basically that if um, um, so I'm paraphrasing him. I don't know exact. I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was basically saying, "Well, if you're if, if parsing uh, textual data is your bottleneck, you're basically doing it wrong or something." So, so I, I took that as saying, "Well, we dismiss this cost, right? It, it doesn't matter that much, right?" But then um, a few years later, there was um, you, you might remember there was the NoSQL phase oh yeah where, right where people so at some point was for data everyone was throwing them into a relational database so my sequel was well it's still everywhere but it was like <laughs> yeah everything gets stored in, in my sequel and that's the end of the story and then uh some people started saying well no uh we can do it differently which is you know, now totally obvious, but so MongoDB came around and a lot of players like that, which really moved to needle and 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 we started building these really non-trivial systems using JSON, which is, you know, I'm just I'm not saying anything deep, right? It's, it's just the fact that now we have like 
corporations and, and entire companies that have these huge systems with a lot of JSON uh, being uh, shifted around. And and so at some point there was this um, this this benchmark. I, I think it was Yahoo who constructed it. There was a benchmark of performance for NoSQL uh, system. And and someone I don't remember his name, but but wrote kind of a blog post or an online article arguing that basically um, this benchmark was flawed in the sense that it was a JSON benchmark, mm. right? So so it was basically benchmarking the JSON parsing performance. And, Interesting. And, and this stuck with me because I said, oh well, that, that means that people were arguing against Timbray way back. Maybe at a point, or at least now they're at a point, because clearly you could be benchmarking and 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 then be benchmarking, you know, uh, JSON parsing performance really. So that, was, so that just dominated everything else in the benchmark. And since I've made this point, this uh, of course it's not always the case uh, in a lot of systems uh, parsing either XML or JSON. It's kind of a joke, right? It's 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 um, it's f- nearly free because everything else dominates. But there's only cases uh, like I've had people work, and I, I don't want to name the companies, but people tell me, well, in our backend, you know, I, I, after processing time has to do with basically JSON. It's it's, it's everywhere, right? Right. I, I I've heard at Google the joke is like mainly what our servers do is serialize and deserialize protobuf back and forth to each other and I, it's easy to imagine that at other companies it's the same thing but with json instead of protobuf right 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 and, and so and then you start saying you know recommendations well don't use json it's too slow and, and, and so and so all of that gave me um kind of you know a motivation for that uh but way back before that w- w- the story i like to tell was um so I, I was doing a lot of work with uh, c- uh, csv files so comma separated value you know like kind of excel f- uh, yeah. files more, more or less and um for the work i was doing it was very slow <laughs> and, and, and and then and then i switched parser so I, I i got a better parser and i wasn't i wasn't interested at the time about you know i didn't think much about parser it was way back and and then I started reading the documentation, and um, and this was before SSDs. Like this was with you know uh, spinning uh, spinning uh, drives, and and I read the documentation, and it, basically the author was explaining that his parser was fast because it was fully multi-threaded, and that was interesting because all I was reading up to that point was that uh, file I/O was always bounded by ben, the disk bandwidth. And, and, and then you get this guy who says, no, um, I actually have to throw like uh, uh, four uh, CPU cores to max out, you know, performance. Which means if you think about that, it means that actually the process was CPU bound. Meaning if you get a faster CPU, it would load the file far, faster, which means that you're not bounded by the performance of the disk. So that's surprising to me for two reasons. One is this is in the spinning magnetic disk era. Yes. So not even SSD, let alone NVMe. Second of all, it's surprising to me because I would have guessed, perhaps naively, that if you're doing multi-threading for something 
parsing a grammar as simple as CSV, I would think that the overhead of the additional threads and the communication between them would not get you a net benefit. But apparently, both of those assumptions are wrong. Well, of course, you do need like like I, w- I was I was working with relatively large files, like like two gigabytes or something. Okay. So so yeah, it's not going to help if you have a four four kilobyte. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sure. But, but but then but then if you have four kilobytes of data, you're probably not going to be concerned with the you know loading speed. So fair so, enough. Yeah. Yeah. So so so. So yeah, so I'm not saying it's always like a concern, right? Like these things are flexible, but but the fact is, that it can be right. It can be um, CPU bound, and and then of course now it, it, it's even more interesting because uh, I, I repeat that all the time. But uh, you know my 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 game console, like the the PlayStation Five, has a disc that has been with a five gigabytes per second, right? And um, most people cannot uh, process uh, text data that fast. I mean, very few things on, on a single processor is very, very hard to do anything at, at that kind of speed. Like, like five gigabytes per second is very, very fast. And, and, and this this means that you're. Fi- I mean, of course, the thing is that the game console has several processors and so forth, but. Um, but it's still the fact that, you know, like for a lot of data processing, you're probably, you know, very easily uh, CPU bound, bounded. And it's not going to get better. <laughs> well, it is going to get better, but not in the way people think. Uh, because, of course, now you can actually buy today disks that are, you know, twice as fast as that. You know, you've got yeah. 10 gigabytes um, per second and the, the networks are getting faster. So this was the motivation, basically. So, so I came to realize that. So, so you're trying to. The motivation is basically: can we make it actually I/O bound again, or assuming it ever was? <laughs> that that is that is the whole point. That is the whole point is to make it uh, um, I/O bound for real. Now, out, out of basically, basically, if you crank up the, the the frequency of your CPU. It should not go faster. That's a goal, right? Oh, that's a good, yeah, that's a good <laughs> way to tell if you succeeded. I, I wonder about, so you said text formats, but I wonder if the same is true of binary formats. I mean, if I'm parsing a binary format, I guess it depends on how compact it is. And like in JSON, you have like the labels for every single object thing. So if you get rid of all of those, that's a lot less data. But I wonder if the typical parser for a binary format, like, I don't know, Seabor or, or even Protobuf, for example, if even that is I/O bound, if you're not doing SIMD stuff, so it gets more complicated, obviously, to define problem. But but going back to some of the arguments that Timbery had, because he was defending text-based formats, and one of the arguments that is valid it was making is that okay, so basically, if you trust your binary input and you assume that it is perfect as it is, and you basically map it and memorize, oh, just like M map. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and of course, it's going to be, you know, very, very fast. But if like you have this service that you're responsible for and the binary data comes from uh, outside, it has to be validated. And validation is not going to be free. So, you know, and can take different forms depending on, on your data. But, you know, um, so basically some of the price that we pay for something like JSON, you would have to pay anyhow 
for the you know binary format if you want to validate it, right? So let's say in the binary format you have uh, you say, well, I've got this uh, Unicode string that has that many characters. Well, okay, so you may want to validate it. Is, is that like it depends? You know, like if right. you trust it, and then you want to check. Well, okay, is my format consistent? So you said I have that many bytes. So I want to see, you know, and all of these things, they do add up. So because because right. the thing with JSON is that you don't trust it. Yeah, you don't have to trust it. Yeah. You don't trust it. And you actually assume that it may come from a buggy system, right? It may come from a buggy system. And and and, and that's partly why you want it sometimes as JSON, because if it's buggy, you just want to open it in your text editor. And there's <laughs> and an interesting thing. Yeah, right? true. The, the, so, the like inspectability is nice. This reminds me of um, uh, Kenton Varda, who made uh, had something to do with Protocol Buffers version two. Made uh, this protocol called Captain Proto, which, as I recall, had no parsing step because it was just what you said. It was designed so that you could just mmap it directly and just say the bytes on the you know, coming in from the network they're in memory now, and that's it. There's no decoding step. And I assume that in order to make that actually work in practice, you would need to not use pointers or not decode into pointers, but rather into like indices, like offsets into the things. But then, like you said, you have this concern of, well, what if those are wrong? And now I'm, you know, if I'm like using C code or something, uh, I'm dereferencing these indices. Am I going to do a balance check? If I don't do a balance check, am I maybe uh, corrupting memory? Am I reading memory garbage? And to your point, you know, you might say, well, this is all internal because uh, this is my company's one server talking to another server. So of course I trust it. So everything's fine. But like you said, what if there's a bug? It's trusted has has more than meanings than just do you trust the people writing it, but also do you trust the actual implementation to be correct? And if it's incorrect, the consequences, I mean, imagine you have like a chain of servers talking to each other and you get memory corruption on one server. And the, the real reason that that happened was that somebody four servers ago made a mistake in their serialization somehow. And yeah. you know, now imagine debugging that. <laughs> and this this happens all the time, right? So you've got you've got several components. You've got one component that is buggy and is starting to feed the the other services garbage. And then at some point, the other thing is filled with garbage, and you know, and and then you've got to debug the whole thing. And you know, so that's a real practical concern. Anyhow, so I was interested in that, and and then. It was this paper that came along, it was called Mizen. And basically, Mizen was a little bit, you know, so I want to, to credit them because most of the ideas that we use for, for, uh, for, for Syndigison, I mean, basically, the sketch was there. Right. I remember you, you mentioned it quite a bit in the paper and, and talked about how they did this. And then we, you know, took that a step further. And- so, so yeah, so basically we wanted to make sure to credit them properly, but, but there are significant difference for one thing, you know, their approach was, they, they did not really, the objective was not so much to build like a complete parser. It was more like, can we skip over some stuff and go quickly, which is fine, but, you know, because they only did ASCII, to, right? They didn't support UTF-8. No, there's a lot of things right. they didn't support, but it was fine. It was yeah. kind of like a research thing. Sure. And, and that's that's totally fair. And then so so at the time there was um, Jeff Langdale. Who, um, uh, if you research Jeff, you'll find that he wrote. He had a, at some point in the past, uh, he had a startup with other people, and they wrote a really really fast 
regular expression uh, engine. Uh, unfortunately, I don't remember. Uh, if you go to Intel's GitHub page, uh, it's one of their most popular uh, package. And yeah, and they were bought by Intel, which is why now it's on their. And they had done basically this uh, really fast parsing because regular expression is parsing. And so I reached out to him and said, you know, uh, there's this Meisen paper. Do you think it can, we can do better? And he says, uh, yes. And so, and so Jeff start work, work, starts working on it. And, and the first version was terrible, uh, as these things are. It did like f- four passes over to to, to data. So it was decomposed in many steps. It was actually like slower than, uh, you know, reasonable competition. At, at the time, like what, what we set out to beat was a rapid JSON, which was, you know, cited as the fastest, well, then it's in the name, right? So rapid JSON <laughs> right. was, was the fastest uh, parser. It was it's still fairly fast. Um, and that's C++ and it doesn't use SIMD, right? No, it doesn't. And so basically we decide to do, and then we, we work by iterations and, and so iterations. And then by simplifying the design ever more so, we finally get something that is, you know, uh, I, I think now we're like four times faster than, than rapid JSON on a totally fair benchmark, or at least, you know, over two times faster. I mean, it depends on the machine and so forth. Yeah. So, so that was pretty good, and that was that was using just AVX two, right? Like you weren't using AVX five twelve or any of the sort of less common. Yeah, so AVX five twelve is really good to us because because um, <laughs> the sixty four byte chunks. Yeah, because we're we're already like the whole thing is designed around uh, sixty four byte chunks from the beginning, and it was designed that way. And that was because you. If I remember right, you 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 parse everything in sixty-four byte chunks because you take that and then you turn it into a sixty-four bit bitmap where each bit in the bitmap corresponds to a byte, and then you very quickly yeah do do lots of interesting things with that bitmap. And the reason for that is that we've got sixty-four bit processors, so general right. registers are sixty-four bits, so it makes sense, you know, to exactly. Say. And that's actually why I, I kind of like the design of AVX five twelve because it's a uh, sixty four uh, bytes, which is really right. nice. you know, <laughs> very it's, convenient. It's all very 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 convenient. You know, five hundred twelve is really really neat. So, but but yeah, that wasn't around, and it actually turns out that to really benefit for from AVX five hundred twelve, you do need you know. So it's not, it's not so so when you're working with CMD, which is what is important to understand. Is that actually having water registers can be convenient, but it doesn't necessarily help you because the trick is that, for example, for Intel processors to uh, the way they work to get to like uh, support these wide registers, what they do is they kind of fuse execution units, so you can do more instructions per cycle if you're working with smaller registers. Than with a wider register, so so this is a penalty that comes from using wider registers. So so that's why just like people think it's like well, if you never work w- w- with these things, you think well, just using you know, if you if you double the width, then you will double the speed, and it's really easy, uh, and then you can just abstract it all, all away. But it, it it does possibly work if you do like number crunching, like. Uh, matrix multiplication and stuff like that, but 
but for 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 the kind of stuff we do it's right so it it can be faster but it's probably not going to be double the width of the register is not going to get you double the performance it's going to get you less than double but more than more than 1x yeah probably i mean it may give you well, yeah but it could give you like nothing really because uh other bottlenecks will, will, will come in and, and there are bottlenecks with avx 512 for example they use these mask registers which look like general purpose register but they're not so so you have to you have to let NC to move things around, so you've got penalties there. But you can get two X, but you need to redesign these things. So yeah, but we yeah we we did not have that initially. And what's also important to understand is that when we started out, basically we wanted to do a full parser. This, this was very important to us, like a, a full DOM tree. And the reason we wanted to do that was less about being practical, but more about really proving the worth of the design. Because the problem is that if you don't do the full thing, people can always say you're faster because you're kind of cheating. Because you skip things. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't. So right. we don't skip anything and we're fairly fast, right? Yeah. So, so, but you can't actually, the SIMD stuff is not essential, but the vectorization, like working really with with very few branches and everything, that's really, really important. Like, really. Oh, that's interesting. Important. So, so I, I guess you've maybe done this already, but I wonder about, because I mean, you talked about in the paper and then also in your QCon talk about uh, avoiding branch mis- misprediction being a really, really critical factor to why this goes so fast. And so it sounds like what you're saying is even if you took out all the SIMD instructions from SIMD JSON, even though it's right there in the name, um, just the fact that you're operating on 64-byte chunks and doing these uh, bitmap approach that lets you avoid branch misprediction would potentially still be even faster than, let's say, rapid JSON. I don't know if that's enough to be rapid JSON, but maybe Jackson. <laughs> yeah, it's different in the case that... Uh... So basically what, what SIMD allows you to do is you can cut into number of instructions. And, and so that's helpful. But it's, it's not perfect in the sense that it does reduce the number of instructions, but you have um, slightly, it's slightly harder to retire as many instructions per cycle. So event, like SIMD is not entirely free, right? So, yeah. so if you do just do general purpose um, instructions, you can often, um, if they're really streamlined, then you can sometimes crank up the, the number of, it's a little bit easier sometimes to crank up the number of instructions per cycle. So it's, it's closer than might appear at first, but the real problem with conventional design is that they have a lot of hidden overhead. They're really branchy with a lot of right, a lot of if else. Yeah. So, so, so you know, one, one big uh, one, one example I, I like to 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 cite is um, you know we all work with iterators. You know, when you iterate over some data structure. Now, if you iterate over an array, it's good. You know. It's fine. But very often you, you iterate over something more complex, like a, a graph or a tree or something, or some non-trivial data structure, like a hash table or something. Then there's a fair amount of overhead. Uh, if you look at just the instruction count, it, it gets fairly big. 
or even like a, a linked list, which is a simple data structure, but you're doing lots of pointer chasing. But even beyond, if you just look, if you compile your code, you'll see there's a lot, very often in, in real practical example, you've you got a lot of overhead. And so, and so it's basically, even if your data is right there, it's like you're accessing it through a straw. And basically just trying to find data you have a lot of bandwidth, but you've got to, you create a bottleneck there where the data has trouble passing. So that's that's the idea. You really want to streamline the processing as much as possible. So you know examples of terrible design uh, that you can easily do, like even like like C plus plus, or you could do it in Rust or whatever. Is like for example, well, I grab this thing, I, I construct like a little string. Uh, that you know uh, is located possibly even on the heap, and and then I construct a linear little string, and then I construct a linear one, and I pile them up in this big data structure. Once you start doing that, it becomes like impossible to go at, at gigabytes per second. So you don't want to do that, but that's how people are taught to program really. But then if you benchmark, you're never going to get anywhere. So not everything actually. In the first version of SimDJSON, we could probably have, I'm not, we're not going to do it because, but we could get fairly close to our performance without the SimD instruction. But that doesn't mean that the SimD instructions are not critical. They are because then we got into the second phase, which is now we're working with John Kayser. We designed this thing that's called on-demand, which is really where it gets exciting. So. So on-demand is kind of like, we have two front end. So there's what you see in the paper, and there's the littlest thing that we've been working on for the last two years, which is, in my view, much more interesting. So so the way the way this works is, so we have this really, really fast pass that does indexing. And this is really, in that case, like SIMD instructions are really, really well suited for that. It's the design you know about. And so we do this, but then instead of parsing everything and constructing a tree, we have this, this kind of lazy approach that looks as if you're working over a parse tree, but it's all on the fly. That's why we call it on demand, right? It's all evaluated on the fly and you can skip stuff and it comes out very naturally. And it's a little bit like, like a streaming API, but the streaming APIs have a terrible expressivity. They're, they're really hard to use. Even if it's high performance, nobody wants to use that. People want the abstraction of, I've got the JSON, parse it. I've got a tree right there with objects and, and arrays and stuff. That's what I want to be working on. And so that's really, I think, the exciting part where we have this super fast indexing, and then we have this little thin thing. It's really, really thin. It's just basically a smart iterator that works over to data. And if you look at the, and we'll have a paper about that eventually, that's really where I think it really pushes the envelope substantially. That's fascinating. So you never actually construct a real AST. It's just you you make the indices you know, very, very fast. Like here's the, the index of like the, opening brace and the closing brace and the, you know a quote and the, or I guess the string is like between here and here and so just the source data you're like here's the bytes from the original payload the original JSON here are the indices of all the interesting characters and all the collection delimiters and stuff like that and then if you're like okay and now I would like to traverse this you somehow provide an API that says like okay I want to 
get this first thing and then I want to look at its dot first name or dot last name. And it's like, sure, here's the first name, here's the last name. But there no, there isn't a real object. No, there isn't. And if you look, I invite you to go. Like you can go, um, can, and, and, and because we're uh, bolted into Godbolt, um, Godbolt, you can actually see how it compiles down too if you want. But you can see our documentation and really feels like all our documentation is really, really clean. It's in the sense that it looks really like the code you would write if you add a, a, a tree, but the tree does not exist. There's no tree really. And so you, you get an object and say you've got this object instance, but actually it's nothing. Like it's super, super thin. There's nothing in it. And you say, okay, I want the key uh, and we'll just visit it will you know it knows how to recognize a um um a field because it, you know it's like quote column and then something comma and so forth and so and so then it just jumps around finds the key and then uh you know it gives you access to, to everything that way and that that's really exciting i think i agree because that that's really interesting to me because in my experience just like as a professional software developer it's really common to get some JSON from some server. And then what you want to do is immediately turn that into some different representation in memory, which is appropriate for my use case. And quite often, it's only a subset of the JSON. I don't want to actually traverse the entire thing. I'm like, well, I want this and this from there. And it's going to give me more than that because the server is written to be you know, flexible. It's not designed to give me exactly what I want unless maybe it's GraphQL or something like that. Um, and so therefore, I don't, uh, there can be a potentially significant performance benefit to not materializing the whole thing, not just because I don't want to build the extra data structure, but like you said, with the streaming API, you have no choice but to go through the entire thing to to get all the information you need, even if all you need is actually just this field and that field and the other field and so forth. So so, so that's what we're working on. And, and there, I think that's an instance where you know where our design really pays off. But we couldn't start with that because... Had we started with that, people would have said, well, you're fast because you're, you know, you're cheating. But now, you know, so we had to start with a foundation where we do like full everything. Like we, we support, a full, well, JSON is not that complicated, but we support full JSON specification entirely, you know. Well, speaking of complicated, I mean, you, you, you and I were talking previously about more complicated grammars than this. So, like, you, you pointed me to the um, uh, SIMD zone project for parsing DNS zone files, which was interesting because the thing that I'd asked you about was, like, so I'm interested in this because, you know, working on a programming language and, um, and, you know, I was like, well, can we use this in our parser to make it go a lot faster? And one of the things that came up was, well, what about cases such as you have, uh, comments and comments are delimited by you know you have an opening comment character and then it ends at the end of the line and you also have strings which are you know double quotes but what if you have and what appears to be a comment character in the middle of the string how do you know that that's still part of the string and not the comment and vice versa if you have a comment and it has quotes in it how do you know that's still a comment and how can you do that branchlessly and i was looking at the the code for uh that you linked me to the um simd zone and it seems like there it's it's doing a little bit of branching to handle that and I said, oh, okay, this must be impossible to do branchlessly. And you were like, ah, <laughs> famous last words. <laughs> well, first, like Cindy's own still like, and this is not criticism, but it, it's still like a prototype, right? So uh -huh. it's not 
It's not clear we need to be as fast as possible. Part of the issue there is that um, also is that you kind of have to split things into lines because it's kind of part of the format. And, and then once you've done that, then it gets easier possibly to use, you know, some branching. But I wouldn't like, okay, going back to branching, like not all branching is bad. Like, like for example, if you're branching on something that is easy to predict, then that's, that can actually be better. It's just like a, kind of like a complicated problem where, you know, like, like GPUs are um, famously bad at branching. Um, they got better, but they used to be absolutely terrible. Um, um, uh, but, but, but the reason why our commodity processors are, are, are fairly good is that they're good at different things. Um, but what they're unavoidably bad at are um, very, very hard to predict branches. Uh, so, so when it has to do with the structure of something, sometimes, you know, that can be like relatively easy to predict. And something like, like comments are not necessarily so incredibly terrible um, uh, because, uh, well, depends on your coding style. <laughs> but either you have almost no comments or comments, uh, comments everywhere or in a predictable manner. So, so, so it's not clear. Like it's kind of like a research issue where you want to go. But of course, one of our issues that uh, branches uh, have overhead of their own, even if they're predictable. So, so, it, so if you're starting with something that is essentially branchless and you're adding a few branches then you're not, it's not too bad. But if you already have something that's branchy and you add more branches, then, you know, it falls apart. You, you're just right. making things worse. So it's kind of like a, um, you, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like this game, right? Typically, like if you look at the performance profile of some code, it's not all uncommon, for example, like falling patterns happen all the time. So you've got this code that has very, very few instructions. For example, they're all CMD. So you have this really streamlined code. It's all SIMD, very few instruction. And you can actually, by removing some SIMD and putting it into uh, general registers, at the expense of having more instructions, you actually make it faster because you're able to crank up the, the number of instructions to retire per, per second because you're using more uh, execution units. The same is true with branching. So you can take this perfectly branchless code, you add a branch, um, which makes things highly uh, conceptually, but it makes things faster, actually, because, you know, so, so it's, it's kind of a complicated thing. But yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question. I, I think the general idea, I don't know how, how applicable something like SimdJSON is to, it can be, I guess, to, to programming languages, because it's like, I don't know how fast you type, but I, I usually don't type megabytes of code per... <laughs> Well, the appealing thing, um, I guess there's a couple of potentially appealing things about it. So one is that when you're talking about um, editor tooling, and I've talked to some people who have worked on editor tooling for various different things. And what, to be fair, one of the things they say is generally that, you know, parsing is not a big part of, you know, what, what as we've seen in practice, it's generally pretty quick, even if we're doing lots of branching. Having said that, there's also an element of if you're typing and 
the tooling is reparsing and then recanonicalizing and then redoing type checking on every single keystroke, let's say. Um, that's a lot of work. And every opportunity that we have to shave some time off of that is potentially time that gets gets us below the threshold where it's noticeable and feels laggy. And so that's basically applies to every part of the pipeline from parsing all the way through to type checking would be the last thing that, that we would do in that that pipeline. So even if it's not something where it's necessarily as noticeable as you know chopping some significant percentage off of your server bills. It still feels like something that's relevant to us. So, so um, Jeff Langdale, the guy, the guy um, that uh, you know sketch uh, uh, some with me early er, early on, um, he has this idea, which I think is well, it's not new, but I, I think it's appealing. So he thinks that things that were too tied up to uh, text when we uh, think about programming languages. So basically, he's arguing that if you're going to design a programming language, it should be independent of syntax, so to speak, right? So basically, think of this. So the idea is that you could have this, this programming language, which is, you know, think of your parsed uh, tree, right? And uh, But actually, the parsed tree, like the way we, we design programming languages, you start with the syntax, and the parsed tree is kind of... Um, Secondary is derived. Now flip that around, right? So so you've got the real source data is the tree. And if you need to display it to human beings, then you serialize it to text. Right. So this would be like a projectional editor. So I yeah, we, we looked into that for a long time and there's certainly a lot of challenges with that. I think there's an interesting like element of let's imagine a future world in which editors are all designed this way and tooling is all designed this way. I could definitely see some interesting properties of a system like that. This particular language, we're trying to get it to be something that people will use in the short term professionally. And that means that, for example, it's got to work on GitHub. That's just a hard requirement. Nobody's going to use it if it's not, you know, doesn't doesn't work well on GitHub, which means that not only do we need to care about the textual format, but also we need to use serialized text and some form so that it can work with Git and with GitHub and all that tooling. If we had different design constraints, like we were saying, let's just try to make a language that's eventually going to be used or, you know, we, we don't have these like timelines where we're trying to make it something that people can use at work right now. Like literally, we're in the process of adopting this language at the company I work for. You know, that would be a different discussion. But if that's our timeline and, you know, what we're building it for, then it's text is kind of the only game in town. <laughs> but, but yeah, I still think that, you know, so the idea of basically... This is not at all um, unique or new to Simdijizan, but but the idea of having, you know, so you've got your text and you've got an index, which tells you where things are. That's only a, a very good and, and generic design, right? So, I mean, the counterpart is that you've got to, you know, update your index and so forth. Well, one of the learnings that I heard from, again, I have not personally worked on um, like, a, like a like language server protocol or like a VS Code extension or anything, but... I, I know someone who has, and what he was telling me is that um, he's seen languages undergo the process of trying to do everything incrementally from like a parse and onwards stage. And from what he saw, it seemed like it wasn't worth it in retrospect. It was better to just try to parse as fast as you can, start from scratch and just redo everything and ha have each stage be as fast as possible because uh, the benefits, the performance benefits of trying to do everything incrementally are pretty small after you get through all of that, at least in practice, uh, in terms of perceptible to the end user, and the complexity changes, and also especially the 
now it sometimes gets different answers than the CLI types of things, uh, the, the bugginess, et cetera. Um, is huge. <laughs> so I definitely can believe that. So it's definitely the case that, you know, so the generic approach where you've got this index, it's a, a generic idea that works well, but it's definitely not always applicable, right? So right. I think it works well with something like JSON because it's essentially like this immutable thing. Right. Yeah. You just get it and then you're done. Then nobody's changing JSON on the fly. Yeah. Like usually, I mean, you can. Okay, you can edit it, but then that's another that's another problem, right? So, but you, usually, what you do, like uh, on a server, you're going to consume the JSON and produce new JSON. So it's essentially immutable, right? I mean, internally, maybe it's something mutable, but you know, as far as the high level um, process is concerned, it's basically you got this fixed thing, you get it, and then you produce maybe something else, which might include the input, but you know. Yeah. Whereas, of course, if you're if you're working on if like you're doing a text editor, yeah, yeah. And there's some other interesting challenges that that we were kind of thinking through regarding. And you know, of course, if you are in the mindset of let's just build this thing and to, to the AST and then serialize the or, or translate the AST into text so it's human readable, um, that's a different story. But at least in our world, so we do have significant indentation like Python does, which is another interesting parsing, lexing, however you want to look at it, uh, challenge. And the index-based approach was actually one of the things that caught my eye and seemed pretty interesting because like in SIMD.JSON, you don't treat new lines as structural characters. They're just white space that you discard. But if you did treat new lines as a structural character, which I kind of suspect you might want to do for comments anyway, because line comments are end in, in new lines anyway. Um, if you have all the new lines as indices, then an indentation is essentially a new line followed by zero or more spaces. And then the number of spaces after the new line, if you don't allow tab characters, which this language does not, uh, that's your uh, you know, indentation amount, which is interesting because it seems like somewhat of a natural fit where if you've got the index of the new line and you've got the index of the next significant character, whether it's an identifier or something else, then the difference between those two indices, you just do a subtraction, there's your indentation level. And you already, it seems like, have all the information necessary for it uh, just by the nature of this approach. And and that's definitely doable, like branchlessly. Or yeah, right. Really, yeah. I mean, even like, like, I don't want to get technical, but even like the end of line comments are... I don't have the expression figured out, but even if you have strings, I don't think that matters very much because like, if you look at the way SimDigison is designed, it's fairly good at figuring out where a string begins and where it ends. Even if you have escape characters and you can, if you've seen the paper, you know, you can have like 12,000 escape characters. Right, right. And you'll still figure it out. And it's not that complicated, right? And so, so and so that, that then if you if you have like a mask that tells you where the strings begin and where they end, and then you know you can do some logical operations to kind of figure it out. Like I, I've not worked it out, but the tricky part that I that I got stuck on, and I'm definitely not an expert at this stuff, so, <laughs> um, is that with the string escapes. So what you what you talk about in the paper is. You have so let's say we have a string. We have two single, or sorry, two double quotes on either side of the string, and then in the middle of that, you have a backslash and a quote. And of course, you can also have triple backslash, and that means a backslash followed by a quote, yada yada. And then the way that you handle that is you detect in a separate pass, you detect all of those, which is a 
double quote, preceded by an odd number of slashes. That means it's not a delimiter and you just get rid of those. You, you throw those away and say those are just part of the string. The tricky part is it seems like you can do that without looking at the surrounding context. Anytime you encounter a double quote preceded by one or more backslashes, either it's invalid JSON or it's an escaped quote. The difference is that with the comments and quotes, it, you can't look at them in isolation. It depends on what's you know the surrounding context of are we inside a quote right now or are we inside a comment right now? That was the part I got stuck on. Yeah, yeah. So, so I've not even worked on the problem, so I can So I'm not going to make, you know, you know <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, specific comments. But basically, you know, my comment to you was, you know, like never say never. Let's you it cannot be worked out because then someone will give you twelve lines of code that these uh, are beautiful and do it. And then right, maybe someone like, listening to this podcast will do that. Who knows? Yes. <laughs> Actually, and or maybe someone has already done it, and they'll they'll offer you a link. But <laughs> yeah, but intuitively, like the way you'd want to do it is you'd first want to identify uh, the commented out regions. Okay, I think, and then once you have that, you can just blank out everything from there, and it does not seem like it would be like so incredibly <laughs> difficult to. So yeah, there's some overlap with the string issues. Like I remember thinking about that, but I, I, I'm, I'm sure there's a way to do it. Like, yeah, it seems like intuitively it should be possible. I just couldn't figure out how. <laughs> um, no, but I, but I, it's probably basically it's probably something like that, right? So so you kind of have to find a way to, yeah. And, and I think this is a, this is a good example of. When I said at the beginning of the episode that this is like mind blowing to me, is that it really thinking in these terms, it really feels very alien to me compared to the approaches to lexing and parsing and things like that that I'm used to thinking about. It's like thinking about you have a chunk. How can you make a mask that represents what you want? Can can that get you enough? What surrounding context do you need? Um, as opposed to kind of just having a state machine that we're just walking through and being like, what are we doing right now? And, you know, it's just a completely different mental model about thinking about the same problem and, and the same way, you know, s solving it, um, just using a different approach. So so maybe like if you follow my blog, you might have seen like uh, for in the context of Cindy Zone where we work on parsing I IP addresses, right? So right, yeah, yeah, really, really fast. Yeah, I saw that one recently. And and, and that that's basically like totally insane. <laughs> <laughs> it's really like, like, like basically you find where the dots are and you, you look up something and then blah, blah, blah. And then it just all works out and has nothing to do with that, you know, a finite state machine at all. Right. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, more recent stuff where it's the timestamp, right? Which looks easy, but you know, like, like when you have like, uh, like the, why, I have not why, seen this one. Is this an like ISO 8601 timestamp? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, okay. These kind of things. And, and and then you just want to parse it like super fast. Yeah. And then basically you load it in a SIMD register, you do some magic and you, you check everything. And like the like I had a, bl a blog post about that, but uh uh we've been cranking up the, the performance and now I'm like I think you can reach like three gigabytes per second parsing like times. <laughs> wow. Which is, which is, I, I, which is you know, and, and not just parsing, but validating, right? So you, you actually yeah. throw out the bad ones too. So, and it's totally like 
you know, like eight times faster than you could do it with, you know, something reasonable, but conventional. So, so it's a huge thing. Now, I, I love this stuff. I, I wrote a parser for uh, ISO 8601 timestamps, which I'm sure I've never benchmarked. I'm sure it's incredibly slow compared to this. But one of the things that comes to mind here is that different programming languages give you different tools to do stuff like this. So part of it is SIMD, but like you noted earlier, you don't necessarily need SIMD to get a lot of the performance benefits if you can just write it in a branchless way. Um, but also, like I remember in the paper you referenced Jackson as like a, a parser for uh, Java that's like you know well regarded as being fast. One of the things that I was trying to wrap my head around from reading the paper was, let's say that you have a programming language that, for example, does bounds checks and also requires that if you're going from a list of bytes or an array of bytes into a string that it must do the UTF-8 validation right then. Like it won't just take your word for it that's been UTF-8 validated. Like the the primitives that the language offers to you require that if you're going from list of bytes to a string that it, it must be UTF-8 validated because it, it has like a hard guarantee of that. Which, as it happens, the reason I'm thinking about that is because that's both of those are true of the language that we're developing. And I figured that the um, the bounds checks would not be that big of a deal because although they can inhibit optimizations after inlining, uh, other than that, they're almost they're essentially always correctly predicted. So I would think you wouldn't get any mispredictions out of the uh, bounds checks from like doing array indices on the on the array of bytes. Um, however, I wasn't as sure about the basically. So the UTF-8 validation aspect basically means that once you figured out where all of your let's say in using JSON as an example, once you figured out where all your string literals are. Now you need to say, on a per-string literal basis, we're going to validate it for UTF-8 uh, because that's what the language requires. Uh, as opposed to, in the paper, you said, we thought about doing that, but we decided that we would just do the whole thing you know, while we're at it. Um, and then you know, now you know we've got <laughs> valid UTF-8. Um, I'm curious, not necessarily about this example in specific, uh, but, but just your thoughts in general about trying to apply these techniques to languages that are more constrained than like a C or a C++ where you can just do whatever pointer arithmetic and whatever, you know, array access and UTF-8 validation strategies you want. So first, you know, it's fairly easy, like contrary to what people sometimes assume, it's fairly easy to do like slow C++, but but yes, <laughs> it's yeah. easy actually. But yeah, you, you can do things in C++ and in Rust and other such languages that it's just not possible otherwise. Right. Uh, so so um, so a project I've been working on um, a lot uh, recently has been URL parsing. Ah, okay. So the reason, uh, so, uh, so I've worked with um, a guy like called um, Yedges Nazipli um, and others also. And that sounds like crazy, but um, it's actually like a very challenging problem. And doing it quickly is, it can take like thousands of instructions to parse. To parse one up. URL. And when you say parse that, I'm assuming you're, you mean chopping it up into like URL components and the query string and, and the query string can have. And, and there are a bunch of rules, like for example, I don't know why, but like if there are like spaces you have to, in your to spaces, you have to sort of, and then, you're right. and then there's like, there's an, uh, an at sign is allowed in URLs and it does something that nobody yes, ever uses it for. You've got the authority, you've got the authority and, 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 and then you've got um, uh, the, the international internationalization uh, of the domain. Oh, so, right. Yeah. Like converting Unicode characters into escape codes. 
It, well, yeah, it's even more. Yeah, it's fully, it's fully involved. And then there are like, yeah. like there's validations. Like there are characters that are allowed, others are not, and so so you cannot fake like Google, uh, but it's not really Google because you know there's also a security feature. It's fairly odd. Um, so so we worked on this project. And it's really interesting because it relates to our discussion so far because. When we uh, started out, uh, you know, the specification, uh, the web specification is is basically a finite state machine. So it assumes you're doing character by character finite state machine. And of course, if you do it that way, it's terribly slow. So so we, it's really interesting that they would, because they assume parsing involves finite state machines. But right. It, it, yeah. So so we we rewrote it, and it's I think it's you know. Uh, it's the fastest uh, standard compiler. It's called ADA, like like the programming language, and it's uh, it's probably like the fastest URL parser that it is uh, standard compliant. But then we wrote that to include it in Node, you know, Node.js, like the runtime. Oh, really? Yes, and it is it is in, in Node.js, right? And no no C add-ons, just one hundred percent Node.js. Well, wait. I mean, if you download like the latest node, you type a uh, new URL and type some URL. It's actually our library. Underneath. Oh, I see. Okay, so this is like the the Node.js runtime is using your code. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is not. That's not okay. I thought you actually wrote like a .js file that does this. No, no, no. no. It's okay. actually like in <laughs> node, like in. Supposedly. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why I bring this up is that it relates to your idea. So okay. So what what what's the problem? Well, the problem is this, right? So you've got this string that comes in from JavaScript. Well, first, then you've got this funny business that what is a string in JavaScript? Yeah, right? it's UTF-16. Well, yeah, but it's even messier than that because, okay, so Node is using V8. Uh-huh. And a string in V8 is a really funny thing. Oh, it's UCS2? No, no, it's worse than that. It's actually, it can be actually a tree. I didn't know that. Because the way they do it, right? So so they want to be able, like, like for example, I've got this string and this other string. I want to mm-hmm. create a string, right? What they do, the funny business they do is that they don't, they don't like, like the way you would do it very often is that you would create like a larger string and you would copy the bytes, right? And right, right, you right. No, so you have a flat array at the end. Yeah, do. no, they don't. Uh... <laughs> they don't do that. And then you do that, but then but then it's recursive. So I created right. you you put two strings together. Wow. Just it is I never knew that. Like a, it's not a linked list, but it's basically a, a tree, right? Yeah. But so it's, it's like, like it's a persistent data structure. Right. And and and, and, and then if you if you want to glue these two together with another, you just you know, you just, just do this funny business. Keep and going, yeah. If you want to insert the same thing. And then what they can do is they can flatten this, right? And then, but, but you can flatten it in different formats. So you can, um, uh, underneath, well, superficially, it appears like UTF-16. That's how it looks from the outside. But internally, it can be stored, uh, for example, as Latin 1. So, so it's mostly like, huh. you know, or it could be like, or UTF-8 could be stored as UTF-8. And of course, there's an overhead to doing the transformation, but it can do it. And, and and then of course, if you want to read it from from C you need to have the flattened version. Yeah. Okay. Now the fun the fun part is that then you get that that you do the parsing, and then you if you're like me, you work like a, like 
that alone. But with other people, you've worked for months on making this really good and really fast and really efficient. But then what do you do if you want to push it back into JavaScript? Then you've got this big problem because it's uh, like all of the components of a URL are a small little string. Now, if you want to push all these these small little strings to JavaScript, you've got exactly the problem you, you described. You know, because then you've got to create within JavaScript all these little strings, and it's fairly expensive. So you can't in JavaScript, like like if you're working on the Node.js runtime, you can't essentially do the equivalent of. I'm thinking like how you do it in our programming language, Rock, um, which is like you just say, well, this string is like a slice of this other string, and it's like their reference counted separately. I, I know, you know, V8 uses well, tracing okay, garbage so that, 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 that's, that's, that's how, to get good performance, that's how we ended up doing it, right? Yeah, I don't so see you, how else you could do it. <laughs> you just, basically, you push one string, and then you push indexes into it. And, and right. that's how you have to do it. But, but this is, this is, this, you know, and then, and then you get some decent performance, right? Um, now, in our then, case, we, we do the fact, small string... And Python is the same problem. So, so for example, SimDigestion, you know, there are people who wrote um, wrappers uh, using uh, for Python, kind of works, except like creating all these little things, all, all these little strings is really expensive. But not, not all languages, high-level languages are like that. Like, for example, um, PHP is not so crazy. Like, PHP is relatively low overhead. But nobody wants to use PHP these days. So, okay. <laughs> right. So if, so if let's say that you set out to write the same thing you wrote in Node.js, but instead of doing it in C++, you're actually going to write it in .js. So you only have JavaScript primitives. Now, you mentioned the, the challenge of splitting out a string into lots of small strings. Um, what, what are the challenges, I wonder, would you run into uh, in terms of trying to match the performance that you can get with C++ if, if you had to write the whole thing in JavaScript, I wonder? You know, like, like, like it's a little bit difficult because, uh, well, in the case of a very high langu- language like, like JavaScript, where you've, you've got an engine that can do all sorts of things, that, there was a subject I was interested in, like writing really high-performance JavaScript. And I wrote a few libraries that, um, you know. So oh, really? Well, yeah, it's small things like not big projects, but like like um, like uh, a binary heap. Uh, okay. You know, prior to Q, that is fast. Yeah. Because <laughs> they were plenty, like like there were plenty, uh, but they were all very slow. Or a bit set data structure, right? So the JavaScript, wow. Yeah, yeah, a bit set data structure is fast, and um, but. Uh, and then you know you 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 can get decent performance. The problem is so you you, you get you get back to the real problem is really tooling at some point. So tooling, yeah, in the following sense, right? So 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 how do I how do I manage to get how do we manage to get good performance out of uh, even in C plus plus, right? So. Here's journal journally the problem. You take your code, and then you've got an idea for an optimization. You say, well, if we did it this way, maybe it would be faster. Now, people think, okay, fine. You're going to run a benchmark before, a benchmark after, and then you're going to say, well, is it faster or is it is it not faster? Yeah. But that's actually a very very hard problem, even in C plus plus. Because so if you don't have 
very good benchmarks. And you know, the way the way the only way I found to do it properly is to have per- access to low-level performance counters, where basically the CPU tells you um, exactly how many instructions you've retired, how many branch misses you had, and everything. Right? Then, if I've got these hard measures, then it's fairly easy to because because okay. So so if you make your code go twice as fast, you're going to see it even with stupid tools. <laughs> but the problem is that how often does that happen? Like, yeah, right. right. Usually you're making incremental improvements and you want to know, did we actually make progress? And it, it, it's stupidly easy to fool yourself. It's stupidly easy, right? This happens so like often. you have a bad benchmark that's like unrepresentative or there's a lot of noise in it and it looks like you made an improvement when actually it was just random. It, this happens all the time. There was, um, there, I, I won't name the guy. The guy is very smart and, and I won't name him, but he comes up with, um, you know, so, so I've got this library and it comes up with an, an improvement. And then it says, well, it's much faster. And I say, okay, I run the benchmarks and I see no difference because I've got, you know, I'm very careful with the benchmarks and I see no difference. It says, well, look at my numbers. And then we argue back and forth and I, I re- review his code a little bit because I had not paid attention to what the code was doing. And it turns out that actually... What he was doing was saying, if something, then do this fast routine. But the if was always false. So he was never invoking his uh-huh. fast routine. So actually, mathematically, there was no optimization, even like a slight oh, wow. because of it. But he could not measure it. And this happens all of the time. There's a lot of, of really funny things that can happen with benchmarking. Like, like for example... Uh, one point I, I made a few years ago is that, um, you know, modern processors, for example, can easily learn thousands of branches. Yeah. So, so if you've got, um, so if you've got a benchmark, let's say you're parsing an input and it's, uh, you know, 2000 characters or something. And you do, of course you're doing it in a loop because that's usually how it works. Right. Yeah. Well, then you can be almost certain that your your processors will entirely learn. I mean, there won't be any branch misprediction. It will learn all of the branches. Like it can literally learn all of the branches yeah. and eliminate all branch misprediction. So that's just an example. So very often, like people will add a branch and will make things go faster. But right. actually, in the real production code, this branch is not predicted, and so it makes things it makes things slower. So there's lots of things, but but when you're working with something like JavaScript, it's hard. Like just because there's so much noise, like with the JIT and everything else, and there's, there's so many things like like that are hard to figure out, right? So th- there are languages that are somewhat high level that are um, doing a good job, like C sharp. C sharp C sharp mm-hmm. used to be a terrible thing as far as performance was concerned. They do not take performance so seriously um but but not that the new people i you know i don't know at least i don't know all of them and, and i don't work for microsoft and i don't but but you know if you look at the work they're doing they're really paying attention to low-level details and they make it possible for you to do like um more serious benchmarking and so forth and that that that's really important to have low-level co- and, and things like it's stupid but uh, like being able to see like the assembly output, like understand yeah. most people don't want to read assembly, but, um, 
sometimes there are uh, people underestimate how different the code that actually gets executed is from the code you wrote. So, right. so you, you wrote this code and then you imagine in your head it's doing this and that. Whereas in reality, it might be doing something you can't even imagine, like something. Right. In- and this is where like tools like Godbolt, like you mentioned, godbolt.org is just in- invaluable. It's, it's They're so great. And we, we've recently been, um, so the language we're working on has a lot in common with the language Coca, uh, K-O-K-A. Um, but one of the differences is that Coca compiles to C and we compile straight to either LLVM or to uh, machine code, uh, depending on whether it's a development or production build. And, you know, want to go fast, have the build go fast versus have the runtime artifact go fast. This is ex- like what you described is exactly one of the techniques we've been doing is just, you know, LLVM will spit out the, or I guess you can also disassemble it into assembly code. But like we don't have a, a virtual machine or like a, you know, a heavyweight runtime. It's just like we're trying to compile down to the same kind of stuff. And we were looking at some of Coca's benchmarks recently and tried to recreate them in our own. And we were a little bit, well, at first we were a lot slower than we realized we were actually doing things a little bit differently than they were. We fixed that. And then now we're like, okay, so what's the gap? What, why is it that Coca is faster than us at some of these things? And that's the answer is that we have to just go look at these slow level things and try to, you know, look at the assembly and try to ask ourselves like what could possibly be different. And it's, yeah, it, with the absence of those tools, it would just be in the dark. And even with these tools, it's surprisingly hard. Yeah. Like, I'll give you, like, okay, if, like, it's a textbook thing, you know, textbook example, I can give you, like, two examples of, uh, you know, compile output, and you'll see, oh, this is faster for this reason. But in the real world, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like, you're going to get this dump of, like, thousands of instructions, and one of them is like, I don't know, like one of them is 10 times faster. Right. Uh, and finding out why, you know, and it can be a damn puzzle. Like, yeah, like it can be. Absolutely. Really and I also, I mean, there's a lot of, speaking of textbooks, there's a lot of surprising results we've seen. Two that come immediately to mind have to do with hash maps. So um, one is internal to the compiler. We have a bunch of things that previously were just plain hash maps. And at some point, we tried benchmarking. Well, we don't know how big these things are. Let's try, what if we just switch them to a flat array and we just, whenever we need to look something up, we just iterate through the whole array and just go find it that way, which is, according to every textbook, horrendous for performance because you're you're taking something that was constant time, effectively constant time, and making it linear time. Of course, that's going to be much slower. It was much faster to scan through the entire array. And we were like, something must be wrong. Let's Let's see how many elements need to be in this collection that you have to search through before the hash map is faster. It was some astronomically huge number. It was totally mind-blowing, this this result. But I don't know. That's that's what it was showing us was faster. And I'm reminded of um, another benchmark that I really liked, which was there was this uh, data structure in Rust called index map. And we ended up basing our own hash map structure on this in the standard library. But uh, it has a cool property, which is that it remembers insertion order, unlike your typical unordered hash map. Uh, which has a number of nice benefits. And their claim was, well, we are a little bit slower on insertions because we have to add it in two places. We add it to the actual backing store, and then we also add it to this flat array. But we're faster at iterations, so when you're walking over it, because we just have a flat array. And we think that actually this will make the Rust compiler go faster if it switches to this because of all the iterations that they do. And they tried it out and just ran it, like take the Rust compiler, swap out the hash map that they were using for this one, uh, and 
just run it on a ton of huge Rust projects and just see what the answer was. And the answer was basically there was like no difference. It was it was about the same either way, um, which from our perspective was a cool result because we're like, okay, that's kind of a compelling argument that if people are using this language with the same kind of characteristics that the Rust compiler is, which seems plausible, then we can kind of get retaining insertion order for free in the standard library. It's not going to be a, a performance regression, and that's just a new feature everyone can have. Um, and uh, you know, for all the reasons we were talking about, I trust that one more because there are so many inputs. Because it's like it's not a micro benchmark; it's the opposite. It's a it's a mega benchmark of you know this very large system running tons and tons of instructions, and you only changed one variable, which is the hash map. Yeah, I mean, so so yeah, so you've got all the textbook uh, stuff about you know performance, and and I have a few you know I've been blogging for like twenty years and uh, on different things, and I've got a few blog posts about that. There's an interesting one where there, there's this. I'm not going to give. I'm not going to give its name, but it's this famous professor from big American school and complains online about the fact that he had this paper rejected, and so he, he wrote this paper with his students about um, you know a cloud computing problem at the time. It was it's a long time ago. Like the cloud was a new thing, and basically it was like a more or less a math paper, right? Where they uh-huh. said, well. The big O is this, and then we're going to, our stuff is going to be faster because we're reducing the complexity. And the people, the reviewers said, well, you know, um, we don't really trust that, right? So test it. And he gets really, really upset, maybe because he's big and famous and so forth. And so (laughs) I have a blog and I say, well, no, they're actually right, you know, because it's computer science. And computer science means that you have a model, okay? Science it works the other way. You have a model in your head, but that that's not science, right? So a priest, like two thousand years ago, had models in your in their head, right? They could describe to you the earth. I mean, basically, right. you've got turtle and you're on a sitting on the turtle. You <laughs> had a model, right? right. But what you did not have is the idea is that you can run an experiment to verify if your model is right. Yes, and that's what you need to do, and that's why it's computer science because then you have to model. You think this is this is going to be better. Okay, test it out. Right. And then you learn, no, it's not better, or it's better, or blah, 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 right? And and, yeah. and, and so to this day, he has this, um, so on his homepage, he has this essay where he says that there are people who are idiots, and he names me and says, you know, look at this guy. <laughs> he thinks that, he, and he had all sorts of arguments. So basically, his argument was that, well, you know, like experiments, they're, not always reproducible, and anyhow, technology changes. So we should go back to the fundamentals. You know, if the math is nice, then it's okay. And uh, but you know, these are like. But that that <laughs> approach is not going to get you to parse JSON at I/O bound speeds. Well, yeah, <laughs> like it, you did. <laughs> it's it's not actually going to. I mean, it's true that the problem is that. Um. You, you'll hear this, this objection, right? The people will say, well, okay, you're benchmarking with the technology we have today. What, what happens in 20 years when the processors are different, the problems are different? Um, maybe if you're building on LLVM, maybe you know it goes through a major update in the next five years and everything. Things change, you yeah. know? That, and then you have to update your model. That, that, that's the truth. That's what you have to do. Absolutely, and, yeah. And, and so all of the, 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 
like it's not that the theory is not it's not useful like the hash table theory is cool right so so you should know it but then you should it, these are models that you should test and, right. and there are different ways to implement hash tables as you as you remarked right there are different ways and and, and if you want to, you should try different types and see which one fits for you, for you model. And sometimes, as you pointed out, the best way to implement a hash table is an array of key value pairs. Right. And <laughs> so, I think the critical distinction is that knowing about like big O or asymptotic complexity, whatever you want to call it, it's a factor. It's not the only factor. And it's not even necessarily the dominant factor, depending on your hardware and your problem space and things like that. So it's useful to know about it because it lets you think about it and talk about one factor of performance. But like, certainly it's the case that all else being equal, if you're doing, having the CPU do more instructions over like, you know, proportionate to the number of elements in the collection, of course, that's going to be strictly speaking slower than something that's doesn't have to do that much work. I mean, more work takes longer. Okay, sure. All else being equal. But the thing is all else is almost never equal. So the question is, you know, what That's are the right. other factors <laughs> besides That's that? That's right. And I prefer actually to describe it, and, and maybe your experience will, will be the same as mine. I don't know. I prefer to think of it as a teaching tool. So, sure. So you've got, you got someone who has never programmed very much. They've never worked on actual problems. And um, you have to explain to them that, um, you know, doing insertion sort on a large array is going to be slow. Why is that going to be slow? Well, it's going to be quadratic time and you've got uh, 12 million entries. It's going to be slow. Okay. So, so that's a teaching tool. You know, you can, you can go to the whiteboard and, and explain. Yeah. Okay? But in practice, I don't know about your team, but I, if I had to guess, if I go, I don't know if you've got physical offices or stuff, but suppose you do. Uh, I'm not sure your whiteboards are full of big O. <laughs> no, no, we, we have, we're, we're scattered all over the place. It's all volunteers. You have people in, you know, different countries. Okay, but, 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 but you see, you see what I mean? Like if you add, uh, whiteboards, it would probably not be filled with, no. you know, like, yeah, definitely like not. Let, let's say Joe has a performance problem, right? And you want to talk with him about it and, or with Jill, or it doesn't matter. And, and and you want to talk with her about it, and and you're 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 chatting. Um, if you were talking about a very junior person, you might start talking about big O and so forth. But if you're talking, if you'd like two experienced guys or gals, and you say, uh, okay, and you start ranting about big O and stuff. All right, we'll be talking about heap allocations and cache misses and mispredictions. Yeah, you're going to be like way beyond that. Like this yeah. is like, like really like, like if Jill came up with this algorithm that is a, you know, quarter time when it should be like uh, N log N or something. Well, it's because probably Jill is in, uh, has been in the company like for three months and she's fresh out of school and something. Right? And that's what and they taught in school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's what you're going to talk about. But if you have someone a little bit experienced, you know, like if Twitter is slow, it's probably not uh, a big old problem. It might be. Also true. Yeah. Typically, that's not what it's going to be. And, 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 and the tooling is super important. Like just one thing that I find is, uh, and maybe your experience will be the same as mine, is that like people, for example, w- one thing I really like is that people assume that, you know, you can do profiling, for example. And I do profile, like everyone uses profilers from time to time. 
But uh, it's amazing. Uh, little insight, I guess. <laughs> It's like you can stare at it like 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 you would think like you see these nice flame graphs, right? And you think, well, this is very insightful. But in yeah. the real world, very often like, <laughs> help. Yeah. In some areas, that's why we use them. But like if your boss comes to you and say, Well, can you make this like twice as fast? Staring at the profiling data is probably not going to get you there. Right. It's, it's a useful tool to have in the toolbox, but there's a lot of other ones. And, and you would think, and you would think, again, that's, 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 you would think that because we all thought that it's like a Pareto distribution, right? So 80% of your, uh, of the time of your program is spent on 20% of the code. Okay. So find the 20%. Okay. Fine. Now repeat, repeat, repeat. And then you'll find like the two, two lines of code that are taking all the time, but that doesn't work. Right. Obviously. Yeah. Cause then you're going to change these two lines of code. It's going to get 2% faster. <laughs> yeah, right. And then it's going to move elsewhere and you'll be chasing. Then you'll find out, no, wait a minute. I should take this whole data structure and take it out entirely. Exactly, right. Just to re redo the whole approach and then, yeah. Don't mess up with these two lines of code. The problem is the data structure. You have to take it out, you know, and, right. and do what you described. Go with arrays. Like profiling is not going to, you know, get you there. Because yeah. you, you'll be staring <laughs> at your code. Okay, wait a minute. Okay, I do an ash map. I do this lookup. And I compute the ash. So you might you might start trying to optimize the ash computation and stuff. But you know, it's not good. It could to be work. totally yeah, to the wrong path. Wow. Yeah, we, we could go on forever about these things. I I love this topic. And uh thank you so much for for joining me and sharing some of your wisdom on this because this is this is really fascinating to me. And uh, and thank you so much for all your uh, your open source contributions also because uh that's that's how those of us in industry like actually get to benefit from these things like the, the explanations in the papers and also just showing us your code. I'm I'm just very grateful and I I, I love talking to you about all this stuff. So thanks so much. Thank you.